0: Let's stand together. We're going to read the Word of God together. I am going to read verses 13 to 22 of chapter 2. And I'm going to ask you to join me on verses 23 to 25. 23 to 25. But let me read, and then you join me when I indicate when we get to that spot. Let me begin. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers were doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And, he's also, and he said to those who sold doves, "'Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise.'" Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your presence here this morning. Thank you for your word, and I pray that you'd apply it to our hearts. Help now, uh, the preaching and teaching of your word. I pray that, uh, that you would draw people to yourself and help us to understand what it's all about when i say the word superficial. Thank you for the 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 window of hope, the glimmer of hope that was given this week by the Supreme Court. We know that we know that's not the only answer and that it did not outlaw abortion, but Lord, it's a glimmer of hope and we thank you for that and help us to be faithful. Thank you for this day, bless our time together in the word in Jesus name. Amen. You can be seated. So back there in verse 13, Jesus kind of returns to his home base of operation. Evidently, their family maintained a home there in Capernaum by this time. And it was home base for him. They didn't stay there long. Verse 13 records that uh, the Passover of the Jews was near. Jesus, always living in obedience to the Mosaic law, he never broke any, knew that he is a, he is a male and a leader needed to be there. And so he was headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. Incidentally, we know that Jesus, uh, his ministry lasted three years. Without the book of John and without the mentioning three different Passovers, we wouldn't know that his ministry lasted three years. We'd only think it lasted a year, but it lasted three years. John was the only one to record all three of those uh, of those um, Passovers. Now, when Jesus arrived to the temple area, he was very upset. In fact, uh, he was so upset that he made a scourge. Uh, He made a whip, and he drove the moneylenders, and he drove the people away. Why did he do it? What he found was that his father's house had become a place of commerce. It had become a place to do business. Now, this temple to which we are referring this morning, and to which Jesus arrived, uh, was cleansed uh, out by Jesus. This place sat on top of Mount Zion. In the Old Testament, it would have been called Mount Moriah. It covered about 30 acres, it was composed of several buildings, the temple building itself with a portico, it included the holy place and the holy of holies. You would have read about that in the Old Testament with the tabernacle. Around these buildings were a series of courts. Now they weren't exactly round or perfectly square, but these courts, each with a wall and they expanded outward. The inner court, the one closest to the temple itself, was the court of the priest's. They did their daily ministry there, the brazen altar and the labor where ceremonial washing was done. That was the first inner court. Next was the court of Israel, uh, where mainly the men would assemble, but also at certain times and for certain events, the women would assemble. Next, a larger court was the court of the women, the court of the women. And um, so uh, they, the women would assemble there, and then as I said, sometimes they went into the court of Israel. But the main and the largest, by far, the largest court was the court of the Gentiles. It is the court that was most distant from the temple. That's not insignificant. It was the outer court. It was the one that was most distant from them. Uh, At each one of the passageways, there was mounted a warning and a law. The law was written, no Gentile shall go beyond this point upon penalty of death. And they had temple guards that would have been guarding there. If you remember the story of Paul, he was accused of bringing somebody out past the Gentile court to the next court. And they wanted to not only kill the person he brought in, but wanted to kill him for doing it. It wasn't true, but that's what he was accused of. Now he was here It was this first court you come to when you came to the temple grounds. The first one was the court of the Gentiles, and it was here that the oxen, the sheep, the doves were being sold, and the money changers were making their profit. Uh, The need for animals was legitimate according to the law of Moses, but they had made a mockery of the whole thing. Uh, The pilgrims that came from a distance would have found it much easier to buy animals, thus you needed the money changers there to change the money because at the temple you could only use the Jewish shekel. You couldn't use Roman money. It had prints of Roman leaders, which would have been thought as idolatry because it was an image, and they couldn't bring an image inside. And so uh, the lust for power and greed made the priest and all of these leaders move the market, which used to be on the outside of the temple. That's where it would have been originally, and it would have been private business supplying the animals and doing the money changing, but they saw an opportunity for gain. And so let's just move the Gentiles out. Let's just, they're not important anyway, we know they're just dogs, and so let's just move them out and let's bring in and use this opportunity for commerce. And so they made a huge profit. The currency exchange was there as well, and they made money on that. So, when we read that Jesus arrived at the temple, and the first thing he found was that the outer court had become an open market. It was a bazaar of sorts. You might think like the downtown farmer's market, except with animals, and it was loud and it was noisy, and that's the first thing Jesus saw when he came to his father's house. He wasn't happy. In fact, he was angry. I've had people ask me recently, you know, well, was it wrong for Jesus to get angry? Well, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, "...be angry and do, do not what? Sin." Do you think Jesus was justified with his zeal that he had for his father's house because of what was going on there instead of worship? Do you see what was happening? It is so very obvious. You know, I find it's very interesting that when Jesus got there and he saw what was going on and the injustice that was happening, he made a whip of his own. Same word for scourge. And he drove out the impurities from the temple. Those very people are going to make sure that Jesus, they're going to take the same instrument of scourge, but they're not going to be driving impurities from him. They're going to be beating the innocent lamb of God. I think it's interesting. So the noise at the temple was not that of praise and prayers rising. It was the sound of oxen baying. It was the sound of sheep's hoofs. It was the sound of money changers and vendors hawking their goods and services. Jesus saw the evidence right in front of him that not everyone had a place at the temple. The Gentiles had been, the place for the Gentiles had been reassigned. So what was going on there was a hoax. It had plenty of men moving about with long, ornate robes, directing affairs and making offerings, burning incense and trying to look important. The glistening marble of the temple dazzled everyone. The immense crowds gave the impression that this was very important, but it was hollow. It was religion without a relationship. It wasn't real, and Jesus wasn't happy with it. It was superficial. The name of my sermon today is superficial. Now I want you to note with me briefly this morning that God has no respect nor will receive superficial professions and superficial practices of religious routine. God accepts nothing superficial, it has to be from our heart. I want you to see here four markers of superficial faith in this passage of Scripture. And I'm going to move quickly, so please use your sheet. You can always pick these up, by the way, right back there on that table, just like you always could. You can pick them up and write them down or look at it on your electronic device. The first thing I want you to see is the misuse of the temple. The misuse of the temple. "'Take these things away,' he said. "'Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise.'" The first thing I want you to note there under misuse of the temple is Jesus claimed God as his father. It's very significant. The New Testament, in the New Testament, Jesus is seen as the son of God or he's heard calling God his father about 161 times. In the book of John alone... 105 times, emphasizing who Jesus is, the deity, he either calls God his Father or is called the Son of God. Jesus claimed God as his Father. It's significant. He's saying, this Father of mine is God in heaven, therefore I am claiming to be divine. Don't miss the deity claims of Jesus in the New Testament. Then Jesus claimed authority over his Father's house. The temple was his father's house. He was going to see to it that it wasn't abused, that it wasn't misused. This temple had a very clear purpose. Just as that tabernacle in the wilderness, this temple in Jerusalem was the place where God met with his people. It was where they could make themselves right with God by sacrifice and where they could offer prayers and praise and thanksgiving. Uh, There they could make and they could complete their vows to God and they could serve him faithfully. They could seek the wisdom of leaders. They could hear the word of God taught. And so this was the purpose. Jesus showed then righteous anger. Listen to Isaiah chapter 56, verse 6. All about the Gentiles. This whole passage is about the Gentiles. But let me just read the last portion. Speaking of the Gentiles, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer forever all nations. And so why was Jesus angry? Because his father's house, a house of prayer, was not open to all people. And it was a place where instead of prayers being heard, you could hear the chattel going on. You could hear the animals, and you could hear the hawking of the vendors. It was meant to be a house of prayer. It had become a place of commerce. Matthew 21, a den of thieves. And that's also Jeremiah seven eleven, And then Mark uh, eleven seventeen in Luke 1946 called a robber's den so Jesus wasn't playing games he was very upset it was meant to be a house of prayer and it was also meant to be for all people their space was taken up by merchandise now folks I just want to pull over and say here about Grace Church and our church let's make sure that this is a welcoming place for all people this is not a place where you clean up and come to church This is a place where you come so Jesus can clean you up and claim you to be his own. That's what this is about. And so we need to be a welcoming place, a place of safety to deal with sin, to offer salvation, and to to help with the sanctification in Christ as we grow in grace and knowledge. Now, I'm doing this sermon a little bit different. I'm I'm making four applications as I go instead of two or three applications at the end. So application number one. Folks, we are not attending Worship at a temple today. We are a church meeting in a building today. This is crucial. I'm looking at the church. The church is made up of those that are born again and are part of the body of Christ. And in a local place like this, this is called Grace Church. So I'm looking at the church. It doesn't matter whether we meet in that renovation area going on or whether we meet right here or whether we meet in the GRC or whether they run us out of here and we have to meet under a tree in a park. This is the church. It is crucial for us to understand. Let's make sure we understand why we gather. We gather to worship. We gather to hear the word. We gather to pray. We gather for encouragement and fellowship. We gather for ministry preparation. We gather to observe the ordinances, one of which we observed this morning. We gather to testify, to tell our story of God's grace in our life and our salvation. We do not gather for personal enrichment. We do not gather to find clients We do not gather for political agendas. We do not gather merely to separate from the world, but rather to prepare ourselves to infiltrate the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you see. It's not just we're just holding up over here and hoping everybody stays away. No, no, we've come together to rally together so that we're ready to live this week for the glory of God. It's so important, Ephesians 3 verse 20, "...to him be glory in the church." forever and ever. Amen. It's so important. Now, here's the second thing I want you to see. I want you to see not only the abuse of the temple or the misuse of the temple, but now then, the abuse of the congregants, the abuse of those that were congregating. He found those who sold and the money changers doing business. They came to worship, but they found obstacles to simple, humble worship. Now, this was an Old Testament problem. Uh, two men, Hophni and Phineas. Eli's sons made a mockery of the priestly blessing uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, 12 to 17. Uh, they committed horrible acts, and they also enriched themselves at the very door of the temple. The shepherds of Israel were tremendously judged for taking care of themselves and abandoning the flock of God. That's Jeremiah 23, 1 and following. Hosea records this, and this is this is an indictment. Hosea records that the priest ate up the sin of the people. You say, what does that in the world does that mean? Well, they rejoiced because the more the people sinned, the more offerings they brought, and the better their table meal looked every time they showed up. Because they made, the more they sinned, the more offerings they brought, and their portions increased and increased, even enough to sell. Amazing. Wicked on their part. It was a New Testament problem. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2.17 talks about the fact that there are those, Paul says, that are just simply peddling the Word of God. They're not doing it sincerely. Then there's Second Peter 2 Peter 2.3. The King James says it so beautifully. And through covetousness, they shall with fake words make merchandise of you. You show up and you're a dollar sign. That's all. New Living Translation says in their greed, they will make up clever lies to just get a hold of your money. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, they have a heart trained in covetous practices. Now, it's the right thing to do to give, to tithe, and to support the work of God. But folks, this is not a church trying to have an endowment. This is a church that receives offerings for the ministry, for the gospel propagation, and to support it both across the street and around the world. And if we ever mount up money, then we're not, we're not doing what God has called, called us to do. We're supposed to be reaching people with the gospel. Now, let's pause for application this is a present-day problem. We can jump to the obvious religious hucksters of our day, those who are selling blessed handkerchiefs and prayer shawls and their blessing and autographing books and Bibles and telling them that they'll be blessed if they buy them. But let me ask you about even us. Are we sure people can see through all of our trappings among true Christians All of our trappings, can they see through, don't let me offend you, but can they see through the Christian music industry? You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, we are required by law to put an LLC up on the platform here to tell you who wrote this and all that kind of stuff. And we have to pay money. We have to pay money just to have that license. So therefore, they get money out of this deal. Let me ask you a question. Aren't you glad that the King James Version of the Bible, when it was written, didn't come with some sort of copyright that every time I quote John 3.16, I have to pay somebody? Christian merchandise, doodads and gadgets, unlimited versions of the Bible to see the simplicity that is in Christ. Is that what it's about? 2 Corinthians 11, 3, can, we fi- can people find their way to the cross at our churches? Can they come to Jesus for forgiveness, help, love, and salvation without doing this, without mistaking the track, the trappings, the doodads, the gadgets, and the t-shirts? Can they mistakenly think that that's Christianity instead of a vital, personal, real relationship with God who sent his son to die for us on the cross. Oh, it is so important. It's a present-day problem. Is Jesus preeminent at Grace Church? And is he first in your life? And the question comes, are we just superficial? Third thought I want you to see is this misunderstanding of spiritual truth. That's verse 17 to 21. I won't read it again, but uh, I think sometimes just like them, we miss the spiritual truth. And the first one is we miss the passion of Jesus. It says there in the verse, it says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Jesus is quoting Psalm 69 verse 9. That's a parallel passage of Psalm 22, which is all about the prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ. He had zeal, of course, for the physical temple. He had zeal. I mean, that's what he just got done doing, is clearing it out because of the zeal he had for that place. And uh, it was being misused, and the people were being abused, but it was much deeper than that. Because when he said zeal for his house was literally eating him up, zeal for his house and the call of God and what God wanted to be preached and taught in his house was eating him up it was going to eat him up it was going to take his life away zeal was eating him up he was paying with his very life something else we missed we missed the cross destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up they didn't they didn't get it at all the jews reacted immediately they said what in the world are you talking about it took all this time 46 years for this thing to be built and now then you're going to rebuild it in three days." They were asking for a sign. They says, you know, give us some sort of sign so that we can believe in what you are saying. The sign that Cana, the water being turned to wine, was not hidden. Then in verses 23 to 25, it says, while he was at the Passover, look at it again. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Why did they believe in his name? Because they saw the signs which he did. He did many signs. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 says that Jesus did many other signs other than the seven that are recorded in this book. And so while he was there, he showed up on the Passover. That's a one-day event. And he stayed for the feast, the unleavened bread. That's a seven-day event. So for eight days, he did all sorts of signs, wonders, miracles right in front of them. He did these signs. They saw them and they believed in them. They believed in the signs. Ah, this is important. We know what the purpose was, is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. Now, these folks, these people asking for a sign, didn't have any, they weren't lacking evidence of Jesus' identity. They needed no more proof. They just needed to repent and recognize Jesus as their Messiah. You say, well, what's the big deal? He was doing all those miracles. Why didn't they just repent, call on him, trust him to be their Savior? Well, just stop and think about it. If they did that, they would lose their gig What? Their money-making operation would be over. Remember those markets, and remember the sheep, and the oxen, and the goats, and the turtle doves, and whatever else, the incense, the salt, and everything else that had to be brought in that was being sold, and that commerce was being taken on and, and, and run by the priests themselves. Well, we can't afford for him to be the Messiah because if he's the Messiah, then it's all done. He's the Messiah, it's all in him and we don't need this temple anymore and we can't have that. Mm. You say, could, could it be that people of a religious nature would be that conniving? What do you think? They were not lacking any evidence. Their money-making operation is gonna be over. Jesus said, destroy this temple. Folks, it would be destroyed in 70 A.D., just six years after its completion. You know, Herod, King Herod, began that particular remodeling project and build, rebuild in 20 to 19 B.C., and it wasn't finished until 64 A.D., and that took 84 years. Now, by the way, we're doing a refresh and remodeling our auditorium over here, and I just want to just encourage you, it's not going to take 84 years for us to get that done, just let you know. Back fact, this week, you know, I'm, I'm that kind of guy that every little while when I hear the noise and hear the, the commotion, I've got to get up and go peek. And so I went in there, and man, it, it is really, really, really moving fast. Uh, 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 Justin and his teams are just moving, and it's just awesome. Now, the temple was everything to these people. It was their symbol of greatness. It was their seat of God's authority. It was the last icon of national identity. It was all of these things. It was just no longer the place where people could hear the truth. It was no longer the place where they could meet with God. And so it took a while, but in fact, it took the resurrection even for his disciples to know what he meant when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It wasn't until the resurrection that it, that it came home to them. Destroy this temple. You know, we think materially so much when much of what God is saying is spiritual to us in nature. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise him up. Oh man, aren't you glad that Jesus did raise up the temple of his body in three days? And he rose again, and he promises life to all who believe in him. And because he rose, we know that we will rise also. Folks, we are living with the full information. We know he was speaking of his own body. We're not like them living at the time with the temple still standing. And we're not at those waiting on his death and his resurrection. We live in the time of the New Testament. We know the full story. The disciples remembered after the fact. We know it ahead of time. We're living in the New Testament time. We are living in the temple of Jesus' body. We are living in the age of not coming to a building, but coming to a person. The new age of meeting God in the person of His Son was at hand. We meet God, every one of us, in Jesus Christ. We worship God in Jesus Christ. We have access to the Father in Jesus Christ. We know what it says: No man comes to the Father unless my fa- uh, uh, to, to my Father, unless He draws them. We know that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through him. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So we are living in a time of tremendous privilege today. We don't come to God with oxes, oxen, and goats, sheep, doves, olive oil, and salt. We come to God with nothing in our hands. We used to sing it this way in the old hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. They had, they were wanting a sign. He told them, you have the sign of the prophet Jonah. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish and then new life. They had the sign of the serpent lifted up into the wilderness. Just look and live. And we today have the sign of the cross, the tomb, and the stone that's been rolled away. And hallelujah, how wonderful it is to be found in Christ. The new temple. Oh, how many times in the New Testament is it, does, it, does it have to tell us that we are to be found in Him, in Christ Jesus, that, we, that He is the temple and we are found in Him? And hallelujah, we are safe in Him. Now, we're doing a much needed refresh in the auditorium after 21 years, and we praise God for a dedicated space to gather and worship, to worship and to hear the word. But let's not miss this spiritual message. Jesus said, destroy this temple. Get it out of your head, folks, all of us. Get it out of your head that sitting in a nice, comfortable, clean building makes you spiritual or makes you accepted in God's family. You, got an enter in, you have to enter into another temple. You need to enter into God's presence and be part of his family through Jesus Christ, his son. The world today increasingly hates this Bible truth. They hate for us to say that Jesus is the only way to God. They hate the idea that He is the way, the truth, and the life. But the Bible says this is the only way to God. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way. And in addition, Folks, we don't have to wait on this weekly gathering to meet with God. If you know Jesus, God has an open door policy for you all day, every day. He's never shut down. Doesn't matter the time of day or whatever the circumstance or consequences is going on in your life. He's always available. It's wonderful to gather and worship together. But don't wait. You can come into his presence at any moment. It is so important. Now, I come to the final point, And this is crucial. Please listen. I want to talk about this other marker of superficiality, and that's this utilitarian faith. Utilitarian faith. Pastor, what in the world are you talking about? This is the ultimate superficiality. They saw the signs that he was doing. Uh, Verse number 23 says that during this feast he did many. The Passover was immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and, and that made the whole event last eight days, as I said earlier. Jesus did amazing things during that time, and they believed the signs. Was there more miraculous supply? I mean, more feeding like the 5,000? Were there healings or casting out of demons? Were blind eyes open? Were deaf ears open? We don't know. We just know that there were many signs in addition uh, to what happened in Cana that happened there at the festival and so we don't know what they were and so but we look at it and we read this passage in verse number 23 and said many believed in his name when they saw the signs which we did and so our temptation is to say hallelujah they all got saved not so fast but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and he had, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man the ultimate superficiality. I want you to see this and think carefully with me. The idea is this, that the viewers believed in what they were seeing and they wanted more of it. Heal my son, cast out this demon, open the eyes of my daughter. But But they were receiving what Jesus was doing, what he could do in his miracles, but they were not receiving him. They were not looking at him as the Messiah, the long-awaited king. They were not looking to Jesus as the one who had long been promised. They were not committing themselves. Now, this is very important. In verse number 23, there's the word believed. In verse number 24, there's the word, word committed. It is the exact same Greek word for both one of those, both of those. The emphasis that we've used in English is they were believing, they were seeing, and they were believing what they were seeing. But Jesus didn't believe in them. They were receiving what he could do, but they were not receiving him. And the Bible says God knows all people. He knows what's in each heart and he knows what's in man and he knows what we really want. These people believed in Jesus, but he did not believe in them. And as Warren Wearsby wrote in his commentary, they were unsaved believers. It was one thing to respond to a miracle, but quite something else to commit oneself to Jesus Christ and to continue in his word. Even Simon the sorcerer believed in what he saw Philip doing, and he wanted some of it for himself. But it wasn't Jesus that he believed in. He just believed in the miracles, and so he got baptized because he saw the miracles and the promise of what it could do for him. This is crucial, folks. Faith that believes in what it sees is superficial faith seeing is believing has been the mantra but that's not the christian approach john 11:40 and 20:29 20, i won't even read them talk about this first folks we believe and then we see you know miracles can only lead us to the word of god but it's the word of god that gives us saving faith now faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what Word of God. Three things, always present in the salvation of anyone. Always present. The messenger of God. The word of God. The spirit of God. And without any one of those, there's always a messenger. There's always the word of God. And there's always the spirit of God. There's a lot of people who come looking for what Jesus can do, how he can fix things, and not for a savior. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth, the Lord... Jesus Christ and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved it 's about believing in him it 's about let 's use the better word it 's about entrusting ourself to him. This is so very important i 've done a little study, and the context is always incredibly important and in john in John chapter one verse forty seven we 've already studied the passage, but boy, when I put this all together and put it in context. I had a bapticostal revival right in my own office. Jumped around and said amen and hallelujah. And I understood for the first time something I never saw before. Now watch. John 1 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. And he said of him, behold, an Israelite in whom, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. You see, Jesus saw Nathanael coming. And even though the day before, he had said something like this. Well, can anything good come out of Nazareth, speaking of Jesus, with full of doubt? Nathaniel had his doubts, but his faith was genuine, and Jesus knew what was in him. He said, oh, never mind about that. When he sees the truth, he will believe it. God knows what's in us. He knows what we want. He knows what we believe. He knows what's real in our heart. You can't fool God. Did you know that? You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. You can't trick him. Jesus knows every man, and he knows what's in our heart, and he knows what we really want. Oh, this is so important. Jesus entrusted himself to Nathanael. Then we have the passage that we just read, 23 and 24 of chapter 2, where they saw his miracles and believed. And he said, well, I don't believe in you. Wow. Here's an example. One of the people that was present and was listening and was observing all of those miracles was Nicodemus, chapter 3, verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus was one of those people who had been there during these eight days of, of, the, of the festival, and he'd been watching and observing. And he says, Wow, that's something. Look at that. That's amazing. Yep, they really did open those eyes. And that guy was deaf. I knew him. And on and on. And, and so he comes to Jesus by night. He sneaks in and he says to Jesus, Look, Rabbi, he didn't say, Lord, he didn't say, God, we know you're the Messiah. No, no, no. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus cut to the chase. He didn't even have a discussion. He said, look, I want to tell you something. He says, you can't see the kingdom of God and you can't enter the kingdom of God until you have been born again. Nicodemus, no sense flattering me. No sense trying to ease into this situation. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from God. Above, Without the new birth, you can't see it. Without the new birth, verse 5, you can't go. Nicodemus had yet to entrust himself to Jesus. We get to John eight 30. We're going to see it again. He spoke to those many who believed, and Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So let me wrap this up. Utilitarian faith. What's that about? It is superficial faith, and it will never save anybody. Here's the final application. We need help with our lives. How many of you need help? you just need help. I need help. I'm messed up. I I don't always know. I mean, you know, no matter how many times I get it right, I get it wrong sometimes. I need help. Raise your hands up. Be honest. Look at all the liars in this room. Don't even need any help. All right. You're afraid that I'm going to make you stand up and say something. I'm not. We need, how many of you need help from God? Say amen. amen. Now listen to me. We have problems. We have needs. And we hear this. Jesus is the almighty Miracle-working God, we are told. We hear that he died on the cross, proving his love for us. We hear that and we think, I've tried everything else. I'll try Jesus. I've come to the end of self, done everything I can do. The gurus and the teachers, nobody's helped me. Self-helps didn't work. Maybe I'll just try Jesus. Jesus, save me, please. But you know, Jesus knows every person's heart. He knows what is in our hearts. He knows whether we are coming to him to entrust our past sins, our present lives, and our future destiny into his hands. And he knows whether we just want things fixed. Heartache and problems, crisis and difficulties, addictions to alcohol and drugs and sex and anything else, those things can get our attention and bring us to Jesus, but just asking him to fix those things is not salvation. Superficial faith is coming to Jesus hoping he'll fix you. He can fix you. It's the byproduct of salvation. It follows. The works follow. But we have to come to Jesus in humility, in inability, in total brokenness, with a contrite spirit. And come into his presence and say, I'm broken and I can't fix myself. And I'm lost and I'm a sinner and I'm on my road to hell and there's no hope for me. And I understand you died for me and I have nothing to offer. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. We come to Jesus and we say to Jesus, I'm helpless, hopeless headed for hell save me now that is salvation but too many people have their list of difficulties and circumstances heartbreaks and heartaches and they just want Jesus to fix them and the truth is they want Jesus to fix them so they can go on and live their life the way they want to after they get them fixed they still want to live for self But if anyone come after me, Luke 9 23, anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they what? Follow me. You say, Pastor, you're not much for easy believism, are you? Mm -mm. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let me ask you a question. Are you here this morning? You say, Pastor Phil, I hear you, and I see the scriptures. And I understand. And Pastor, I do have all kinds of stuff in my life, but I don't want... I I know that I can't fix myself, and I know I'm lost. And I just need... I need Jesus to save me from my sins. I want to be saved. I need to talk to somebody. Pastor Phil, please pray for me. I need to truly be saved. I don't care what your past performance, religious experience, or background is... I'm just asking you, I need to be born again, a new person in Christ Jesus. I need a complete, total makeover in Christ Jesus. I need to be born again. Pastor Phil, will you pray for me? Would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you? I see your hand. Oh my goodness, I see your hand. I see your hand. I see it. I see your hand. I need Jesus. I need to be saved. Amen. Amen. How many of you are believers in Jesus, but from time to time you do tend to go utilitarian with Jesus? Instead of yieldedness and Lord, not my will, but thy will be done, you you tend to look at Jesus as a fix-it master. Instead of yieldedness and surrender, sometimes you look at Jesus that way. But what you really need to do is let him be total Lord. Lord. In your life, Hootsy Pastor Phil, pray for me. I want to do that better. I want to. I want to surrender to Him. Just raise your hand. Oh, they're all over the house. Father, I, I thank you for meeting with us today. Thank you, Lord, that if we were meeting under a tree in a forest or in the catacombs somewhere, that you would meet with us. I thank you for your word, and I pray that this whole, whole concept of you seeing through our superficiality would bring us to reality. And if there are those here this morning, and some have indicated they need to come and trust Jesus as their Savior, I pray that today, today, today would be the day. Not tomorrow. We got no promise of tomorrow. For the many believers here, Lord, that tend to look at Jesus as the fix-it master instead of my best friend, the one who died for me and the Lord of my life and the one to whom I yield. And of course, you answer our prayers. You do so many things, but Lord, help them, help them to bow in your presence and to love your grace and the mercy that's been shed, out, shed for them and poured out in their hearts. Lord, I pray for yieldedness, submission and humility in your presence so that we can truly be instruments used of you. But today, before we go, Father, please, these that indicated that they need to be saved, please don't let them go home without Jesus. Please don't let them go home without a true experience and a commitment. Same word, believe and commit, commitment to Jesus Christ. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father. I'm going to ask you to all stand to your feet, if you would, please. And I need a few helpers down here. Some of my helpers, and you know who I'm talking about, whether you're elders, deacons, or so on. If you raised your hand and you said, I want to trust Jesus, I need to be saved, then today is the day. Don't leave. Don't go home without him, please. I'm going to dismiss everybody else, and we're going to stay right here. And I'm telling you, we've got a prayer room set up right over here, and we will help you. Thank you for listening so kindly. Thank you for being here. It's wonderful to be in the Lord's house today, no matter which part of it we're in. God bless you. You are dismissed, but if you want to talk about this, please come.